This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our next one is an unforgettable tale about an American icon whose voice everyone knows. On this day in history, in 1989, Mel Blanc died. And all of our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Let's take a listen to the story. If you added up all the hours from your childhood, chances are the voice of Mel Blanc made up the majority of dialogue spoken to you. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety, Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, Elmer Fudd, Barney Rubble, Tom and Jerry, Woody Woodpecker, and the Tasmanian Devil to name just a few of Blank's voice contributions. This man embodied a sense of innocence and good nature and was so adored and respected that all who knew him had something to say about him. For the sake of time, I won't be introducing all those who contributed to this story. They are fellow animators, inkers, and painters from Warner Brothers, Disney and Hanna-Barbera, animation and film historians, directors, voice artists like Hank Azaria from The Simpsons, Mel's former agents, film critics, his son Noel, and friends such as Kirk Douglas. Without any further ado, let's jump right into the story of Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices. Allow me to introduce myself. Mel Blanc. What an amazing guy. What's up, Doc? <laughs> oh, goody! You can't look at the Warner Brothers characters without hearing his sound, his voice. Launch! There's such a delight to the sound of his voice in every character he did. What'd I say? What'd I say? Think about it today that everybody imitates these characters. He created them. Gosh, what a screwy duck. That, my little cherub, is strictly a matter of opinion. Mel was so unique at what he did. Mel had the range that everyone wishes for. <laughs> Great horny toads, I'm up north. <laughs> Gotta burn my boots, they touched Yankee soil. I think it was a shock when I got older to discover all those voices were one man. His voice was like more powerful than a human body could contain. Open that bridge, Farman! Open it, I say! <laughs> So it seemed to be coming out of every part of him. Mel Blanc had this phenomenal voice box. That's the only way I can explain it. He just did all kinds of things that were just amazing. He didn't just do voices. He played characters. And there's a difference. I he was just able to do that, to just totally, like, you know, animate with his voice, to create a complete three-dimensional character just with his voice alone. Oh, see, that's no chicken, son. I'm a chicken. 
Rooster, that is. How can you be a pair of vocal cords that had an eight octave range, perfect pitch, great singer, and an incredible actor? There's Mel and there's like everybody else. There was nobody better than Mel Blanc. You know where is it, a cat? Howdy doody. <laughs> About that egg. Melvin Jerome Blank was born the youngest of two children on May 30th, 1908 in San Francisco to Russian Jewish parents, Frederick and Eva. After leaving New York to seek his fortune prospecting for gold in the Klondike region of the Alaskan Yukon, his father eventually settled the family down in Portland, Oregon. As a young boy growing up in the melting pot of the American West, Mel Blank would forever be affected by the medley of foreign accents and the way voices define personalities. My dad was always interested in voices and in music and in singing and in entertaining. He started to entertain in grammar school. From around about the age of 10, Mel Blanc was um, very interested in dialects, Yiddish dialects and Chinese and Japanese dialects, Russian. The school would have an assembly, the grammar school. I would entertain the kids with a dialect story or one of the diff- a different dialect each time. And uh, the kids loved it, and they got such a big kick out of it. They laughed, and the teachers laughed, and then gave me lousy marks. <laughs> Here's what Mel wrote in his autobiography, That's Not All, Folks. Except for music class, I loathed school. To be truthful, report cards C's and D's had little to no effect on me, but that applause. What an impression it made on a 12-year-old. Now, where'd that boy go? You gotta be a magician to keep a kid's attention more than two minutes nowadays. My talents weren't appreciated by all. In particular, a crotchety old teacher by the name of Washburn. When I broke up a classroom discussion by giving an answer in four different voices, she reprimanded me sternly. Too sternly, if you ask me. Ah, shut up! You'll never amount to anything. She said scornfully, You're just like your last name, blank. Her stinging insult so shamed me that when I was 16, I started spelling my surname with a C, B-L-A-N-C, instead of a K. Later, as an adult, I changed it legally. I often wondered if Mrs. Washburn associated Mel Blank with the young student she had ridiculed so many years before. He dropped out of high school in about the ninth grade. Yeah, he used to say, I got lousy grades, but uh, I, I developed some great voices because of the echo in the school, in the hallways. He started leading orchestras. He was an orchestra conductor, and the orchestras moved all around the Oregon area and the Washington area and Northern California area. In between when he was conducting the music, he would do shtick. He'd do different voices and different comedy routines. Mel was the youngest orchestra leader in the country at that time, at 17. And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blank. And by the way, if you're a teacher, if you're an adult, think about how you're talking to kids. More on this remarkable American story here on Our American Stories. Oh, what do 
I get that wabbit? What would you want with a wabbit? Can't you see that I'm much sweeter? I'm your little senorita. You are my type of guy. Let me straighten your tie and I shall dance for you. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mel Blank. Let's pick up where we left off. I think my dad never thought of Hollywood when he was young. He thought of going on the radio when radio was quite new at that time. Well, Mel came from the world of vaudeville and radio, a world that's that has long disappeared. Most people don't even know what it was like. In those days, radio was a much bigger business than, than movies. I mean, people forget that, that radio was the single most driving force in you know, American popular culture. And of course, radio is ideal for a, you know, a schooling for someone who was going to do cartoon voices. In 1932, with the blessing of his parents, he jumped into his 1920 Ford Model A convertible and drove south to Los Angeles hoping to find a break. Instead, he met a young woman named Estelle Rosenbaum, a bright and attractive girl with a radiant smile who would become his biggest supporter for the rest of his life. She also shared Mel's deep interest in radio. Mel, 24, and Estelle, 22, married that spring and then proceeded up Route 101 back to Portland to write, produce, and perform their own sketch radio show called Cobwebs and Nuts. To maintain audience interest six hours a week, Mel had to come up with countless voices and lots of material, which was then presented to Mel's one-woman audience for approval. My dad played a hundred different male characters. My mother played all the different female characters. And uh, they had a great time, although they were only paid $15 a week to write it, produce it, and voice it. The show failed to provide a livable wage for the blanks. So Mel seriously considered quitting in order to become an insurance salesman at a whopping $50 a week. Thanks to Estelle's encouragement, he rejected the offer and followed his dreams and talents back to Los Angeles in 1935. Here are Estelle's exact words. Mel, if we're going to be broke, at least let's be broke someplace where it's warm. I had seen some of the Warner Brother voices, or heard some of the voices on the, in the cartoons, and I thought, geez, they're, they're missing out on an awful lot. The voices are pretty bad. Usually, Norman Spencer was there to greet him. I said, I'd like to audition for you and show you what I can do. He says, I'm sorry, we've got all the voices we need. I said, but Mr. Schlesinger said that you were the one. He says, no, I'm sorry. Well, I was as stubborn as he was, and I went back in two weeks, and I said, look, won't you just listen to me? He says, I told you, we have all the voices we need. So I was still as stubborn as him, and I went to him every two weeks asking him to please listen to me. And he says, I told you a hundred times, I've got all the voices we need. So he kept knocking on the door for two years. Finally, in March of 1937, Mel's perseverance paid off. It was probably the week before Christmas. He came looking for a job, and that day, Treg Brown was sitting there. Treg Brown, brilliant sound effects man for the Warner's cartoons. He happened to take over when this fellow passed away that wouldn't let my dad in the door. And I said, Mr. Brown, I've been trying to get in here to audition, just have him hear me. But the guy kept saying, no, uh, I've got all the voices we need. 
He says, well, let me hear what you do. So I auditioned for him, and he got a big kick out of it. He said, would you do it again for the directors? I said, gladly. Warner Brothers decided to give Mel a shot in a supporting role for Picador Porky, a new cartoon animated by a 25-year-old lanky kid named Chuck Jones, featuring the studio's latest character, Porky Pig. He said, uh, I've got a cartoon coming up with a drunken bull. Do you think you can do the voice of a drunken bull? So I said, yeah, I think I could. He says, how would he talk? I have a talk like it was a little, and looking for the looking looking for for the sour match. He says, "Great, great." He says, "What are you doing next Tuesday?" I wasn't doing the damn thing. I said, "I think I can make it." <laughs> Warner Brothers quickly recognized Mel's talent and offered him the prized role of Porky Pig. He says he's a timid little character. I told him, well, I want to be real authentic about it. So I went out to a pig farm and wallowed around with the pigs for a couple of weeks. And I come back and they kicked me out and said, go home and take a bath. When I did, I come back, I said, if a pig could talk, he'd talk with a grunt, you know. Oi, 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 that's Porky talk, with a grunt. They said, oh, great, great. In that same cartoon, he introduced a, a kind of embryonic version of Daffy Duck. <laughs> Don't let it worry you, Skipper. I'm just a crazy darn fool duck. <laughs> now, here's a guy suddenly doing the craziest, most energetic voices they've ever had in one cartoon, and I think that that's when they suddenly thought, I think we're going to hang on to this guy. It was Porky Pig and Daffy Duck that put Leon Schlesinger's Warner Brothers Cartoon Company and Mel on the map. But it was another character, a cool, sly, and wise-cracking rabbit with a flair for survival named Bugs Bunny who would become his most famous and unforgettable creation. Bugs made his cartoon debut on July 27, 1940 in an 8-minute and 15-second short titled A Wild Hare. They showed me a picture of this little rabbit, and he's going to say, hey, what's cooking? I said, instead of him saying, hey, what's cooking, why don't you have him say, hey, uh, what's up, Yonk? That's the, the new uh, expression that was uh, being so popular. And I said to Mr. Schlesinger, I said, why don't you name him after the guy who drew the first picture of him? His name was Bugs Hardaway. Why don't you call him Bugs Bunny? What's up, Doc? It's a wabbit down there, and I'm trying to catch him. Well, they told me that Bugs was a tough little stinker, and I thought, what kind of a voice can I give him? The tough character, maybe Brooklyn of the Bronx. So uh, I put the two of them together, Doc, and that's how Bugs Bunny came out. Pardon me, but you know, you look just like a wabbit. Uh, come here. Listen, Doc. Now, don't spread this around, but, uh... Confidentially, I am a rabbit! The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Subject, Cartoons. Over the next 20 years, Mel would give life to nearly the entire cast of Looney Tunes characters. 
Daffy is not a lisp. People say Daffy lisp. No, he is spraying the water out of the <laughs> lips. It's not a lisp, by the way. I thought I saw a itty bitty pudding cat. Tweety was a little baby bird, so I gave him a little tiny baby voice. Ooh, I thought I saw a pudding cat. And Sylvester was a big sloppy cat, so I gave him a big sloppy voice. Speedy Gonzalez was a little tiny mouse. Gracias, señorita, mi amor. Adiós. Hasta la vista. And he had to talk fast because his name was Speedy. So I gave him a very fast little voice like this. My name is Speedy Gonzalez. I did just wait for him to give it to the mouse. I think. See, he talks so fast you can hardly understand what he says. I think. Just to think, radiant flower. You do not have to come with me to the Casbah. We are already here. He chased the pussycat and catch them and kiss them. I gave him more or less of a French voice, like so, a voila. And uh, I said all the French words wrong, you know. Now all of you skunks, clear out of here! Yosemite Sam, they showed me he was a little cowboy. And he was only two feet tall with long red hair and had to be recognized. So I had to give him a, a recognizable voice. So I gave him a real loud voice, like so. My name's Yosemite Sam. <coughs> this is one that almost gets me every time I use it. Other studios called upon Mel for his one-of-a-kind talent. MGM and Walt Disney were quick to offer roles. But perhaps his most famous non-Warner Brothers voice was Woody Woodpecker, which he created in 1940. And I remembered in school that I had a crazy laugh. I used to do it in, in the school, in the high school, and run down to the end of the hall to hear the echo. It would just echo all the way around, never knowing that this would turn out to be the voice of Woody Woodpecker. Just like, <laughs> Just added that little pecking at the end. And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blanc. And he was so lucky. I mean, he had a wife, Estelle, who said, if we're going to be broke, let's at least be broke someplace where we're going to be warm. What a lucky guy. And also, bumping into a man named Chuck Jones is pretty good luck, too. More on the life of Mel Blanc, his remarkable story, here on Our American Stories. Duck hunting's all the rage and they won't let me be. And I'm so full of bullets, I'm lit up like a Christmas tree. Wabbitwax. And you just can't help but smile, and we return to the story of Mel Blanc, and we're about to pick up where we just left off. But of all the characters Mel created, Bugs remain the fan favorite, and it's easy to see why. Arriving on the screen shortly before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Bugs became a symbol of American strength in the face of the enemy. The quintessential Yank. The tall man with the high hat will be coming down your way. Get your savings out when you hear him shout. And he bonds today. Come on and get him, folks. Come on, skip right up and get him. Because of what was happening in Europe and, and, and the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, audiences just found his sassy control of the situation just so heroic. Coolness in the face of danger. Damn. What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Listen, stranger, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. 
it ain't. The Blanks gave birth to their only child on October 19, 1938, a son named Noel. This stretched the Blank household budget to the breaking point. At his wife's urging, Mel decided to ask for a salary increase from the tight-fisted, savvy head of Warner Brothers cartoons, Leon Schlesinger. Hello, Parky. Come on in. Hello, Leon. Well, Parky, what's on your mind? What can I do for you? What Schlesinger offered Mel was unprecedented for any voice actor to date. Sole screen credit on every cartoon produced by the studio. <laughs> when his voice characterization by Mel Blanc went up on screen in the early 40s, it's the same time that the radio people started utilizing his name in the credits. Jack Benny started to put him into the credits. Abbott and Costello, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Dagwood and Blondie, Amos and Andy. He was on every show, Jack Carson, Joe Penner, and they started to use his name at the end of the credits. Also on tonight's show were so-and-so, so-and-so, and Mel Blanc. Mel was modest about his fame, and he enjoyed his private life. He made friends with everyone he worked with, but it was his friendship with Jack Benny that Mel cherished most. Wednesday night used to be ping-pong night. So ping pong night used to get all the people that were on the radio show, uh, Lucille Ball and George Burns, Gracie Allen and Jack Benny and Jack Carson, they'd all come out and play ping pong. My dad would make them soda fountain drinks and then they'd go home. Mellis thought of as just a voice man, but he was so much more. His timing was outstanding. You know, you can be, you can be a comic and if you can't, if you don't have the timing down, you have the best material in the world, it's meaningless. For the fingers and clumsy, the world's foremost jugglers, Fearless Freep and his sensational high-diving act. Fearless Freep! That's my boy! Step aside, son, you're part of me. It's the acting. People say, oh, Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices, greatest voice man that ever lived. One of the best actors to ever come out of Hollywood. People don't take the voice person as seriously as they would like the, the Olivier's or Dustin Hoffman, De Niro, but, you know, to say, you know, Olivier, De Niro, blank. It sounds weird because of what genre he worked in. But, no, he was a brilliant actor. There. Now I won't be able to get the bird. Oh, Mr. Pudgycat, don't you like me anymore? I, I think, I think, I, I think you're, I think you're delicious! I'll tell you what I think Mel Blanc's geni- most genius achievement was, and only if you're a voice actor do you realize how incredible this is. When Bugs and Daffy are fighting over whether it's rabbit season or duck season, and Daffy Duck comes out dressed up as Bugs Bunny doing a Bugs Bunny imitation, then Bugs Bunny comes out dressed as Daffy doing a Daffy impression. You know, just a darn minute. Where do you get that duck season stuff? You know how hard that is to do, to take your own character, have it imitate another one of your own characters? It's almost impossible. Because if you try to, like, combine two voices that you're doing, you kind of just land in the middle. Like, if I try to do Apu imitating Mo, it'll sound just like... Mo imitating Apu. There's no. We tried it one day at The Simpsons. We were talking about how we were marveling at Mel Blanc's ability to do this, and we all tried to do 
one of our characters imitating another one and have them sound different, and we couldn't do it. You know what you'll do with that gun, Doc. I'd say, you know, Dad, you're an incredible actor. I said, here's a picture signed by Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. It says, to the greatest actor I know, Mel Blanc. I said, Jack Benny used to call you a great actor. Did you know you were a great actor? He says, no, no, I'm not really. I'm a voice person. But he didn't realize that was acting. He never took an acting lesson. In all of his cartoons, when Mel wasn't performing all the voices, his chemistry with his fellow actors was apparent. None more so than with Arthur Q. Bryan, the voice behind Bugs' adversary, Elmer Fudd. Here's Brian and Blank rehearsing in the studio for the 6 minute and 49 second cartoon classic released in theaters on July 6, 1957, What's Opera Doc? The bit we just heard bumping in after the commercial break. The short is informally referred to as Kill the Wabbit, after the line sung by Fudd to the tune of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. I will do it with my spear and magic helmet. Your spear and magic helmet? Spear and magic helmet. Magic helmet? Helmet! Magic helmet? Magic, yes. What's <clears throat> It's a shame. That was going well. Almost I don't think I'm right yet and I'm going to kill the rabbit, am I? That's a blind. That's fine. Okay, kill it. In 1994, 1,000 members of the animation industry ranked What's Opera Doc? Number one on the list of 50 greatest cartoons of all time. Mel and Arthur acted out the combative relationship between Bugs and the tiptoeing shotgun-wielding Elmer in over 30 cartoons over the span of 20 years until Arthur's passing at the age of 60 in 1959. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbits. <laughs> the classic voice of Elmer Fudd needed a replacement. Chris Freeling, one of the directors, said to me, uh, Mel, will you do a couple of lines for, uh, for Elmer Fudd? He says, I've tried others and they can't come close. He said, just can you do a couple of lines? I said, oh, I don't why, but I don't know if I could do it or not. <laughs> he says, that's it. So I also became Elmer Fudd. Whereas audiences felt sorry for the witless Elmer Fudd, the pint-sized, pea-brained, ornery hombre named Yosemite Sam evoked no sympathy at all. He was conceived as a more challenging adversary for Bugs Bunny. That's who I am! You don't say! Well, come here, shorty, come here. You don't say I told you, but uh, there's a guy in the next car that says he's the meanest, toughest, etc., etc., and he's got a seven-shooter to prove it. How's about that? There is! Wall blast the vomit wide open! Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest, he-man, stuffest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande! I'm the fastest gun north, south, east, and west of the Pecos! I'm the... Yeah, shit it! Did I hear someone say shut up? Yep. I'm giving you one second to draw a gun. How's that, Chunky? Say, that's a right smart picture you got there, partner. You know, I'm fair to middling with a pencil myself. Look at here. Quit looking over my shoulder. It bothers me. 
are you By the late 1950s, Mel was on top of the world. And when we come back, the final installment of this hour-long celebration of the life of Mel Blanc, his story continues here on Our American Stories. What have I done? I've killed the rabbit. Poor little bunny. Poor little rabbit. Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let me save your crop. Daintily, daintily. Hey, don't look so perplexed. Why must you be vexed? Can't you see you're next? Yes, you're next. You're so next. How about a nice close shave? Teach your whiskers to behave. Lots of leather, lots of soap. Please hold still, don't be a dope. Now we're ready for the scraping. There's no use to try escaping. Yell and scream and rant and rave. It's no use, you need a shave. Ooh, ouch, ouch, ooh, ouch, ooh, ooh, ouch. And you're nice and clean. Although your face looks like it might have gone through a machine. And this is our American Stories, the last part of this terrific story about the one, the only, Mel Blanc. Although he never personally won an Academy Award, his voice earned Warner Brothers five Oscars. Then, on the night of January 24th, 1961, this happened. My mom called me, I was with friends. She says, Dad didn't show up at the recording session. She says, wait a minute, the other phone is ringing. We had two lines. It was UCLA Hospital saying that he had been involved in a head-on collision on Dead Man's Curve, right above UCLA, and they had taken him to UCLA after they had, cut to, they had to use a cutting torch to get him out of the Aston Martin. It happened that a kid driving a, a 98 Oldsmobile, a great big car, ran into a small Aston Martin sports car, and it just folded up. They didn't expect him to live for the first 12, 13 days. I went to see him, and it was really, um, I, I was shocked because he was wired up with all kinds of gadgets to keep him together. Noel told me that almost every bone in his body was broken. He was unconscious for a long time. Finally, a doctor got an idea because my dad had a television in his room and it was playing Bugs Bunny cartoons. So the doctor went over to the bed and clapped his hands and said, Bugs, can you hear me? Bugs, can you hear me? My dad goes, what's up, Doc? The first words that he uttered were of Bugs. Then he says, Porky, can you hear me? And he would answer me, I can, I can hear you. So he brought him around doing the characters' voices before my dad was fully awake as, as himself. Blank continued working for Warner Brothers, but also began providing voices for television cartoons produced by Hanna-Barbera. His most famous role during this time was Barney Rubble from the Flintstones. Oh boy, wait till Fred sees my new bowling ball. It'll bring my score up to at least 100. And of course he was Mr. Spacely in the Jetsons. Send up Jetson, Miss Gamma. Yes, sir. Ready, Mr. Jetson? Right. Well, good luck. Fire! 
but I don't think any of the characters he did in the later years of his life uh, had the staying power of anywhere near the staying power of the uh, immortal Looney Tune characters. Everywhere you go, everybody knows to love Bugs Bunny. They don't know Mel Blanc, but they know Bugs Bunny, and everybody knows that. I cannot tell you the quantity of fan mail he received, and something really, really phenomenal about him. That man answered every piece of correspondence personally. He would call people. He'd get a letter. Oh, it's my daughter's birthday. She's turning 12. Her favorite character is Tweety Bird. It would be so terrific, sir. You know, if you ever have time, could you call my daughter? And Mel would call these people from all over the world and literally wish them happy birthday or happy anniversary or whatever the, the, the celebration was. When he lived in Playa del Rey or Pacific Palisades, kids would come over every day and say, Mel, can we have your autograph? Do some voices. And we'd have kids at the door. I mean, literally every day. Halloween, we'd have 1,500 to 2,000 kids, and he'd give out signed little autographs and candy. The kids would always go to Mel and Estelle's house because they never knew who was going to answer the door. You know, Bugs or Porky or Peppy or Daffy or Wiley or Roadrunner, you never know. So it was, it was great to watch that. It was really, really wonderful. Here's legend of Hollywood's golden age, Kirk Douglas. The longer I'm in this business, the more I feel that we, we really are very lucky people. Because in a strange way, we attain immortality. And if you judge immortality by the pleasure that you've given to others, I would certainly say that Mel Blanc is one of the greatest of the immortals. devoted a lot of time in burn units um, for ailing children. And I think he really had a great effect in doing so. And even if it made him feel better for just a minute, he did. We had to try to get him to leave, first of all. I mean, he would spend all day doing it. I mean, there would be times I would say, you know, Mel, we've got to go. It's getting dark, you know, we've, we've got to get back on the road. And when there were children and children, you know, in that situation, he, um, you couldn't get him to walk away. If I saw a person smile, that to me was payment in itself. And, and uh, uh, if I could make them laugh when they had been very sad, it, it was great payment to me. Thanks, Jennifer, for helping us tell the story. Thank you, bud. <laughs> On May 30th, 1988, Mel Blanc turned 80. Who Framed Roger Rabbit premiered that year, and Blanc contributed many voices to the summer blockbuster. A huge party was thrown by Warner Brothers on its Burbank lot. And again, Mel was asked the same question he had been asked every birthday since he turned 65. Mel, when are you going to retire? Mel's answer? The day I drop... That's when, who'd want to quit making people laugh? On July 1989, when he agreed to star in a new commercial for Oldsmobile, neither he nor his son Noel would know that this would be his final performance. 
Here's Noel Mel bantering inside the Cutlass Sierra in between takes. You'll hear Noel doing his father's character's voices too. Growing up, Mel trained Noel on the voices so that when the time came, he could take over for his father. Is that any, is that any good? Yeah, we are the new generation of olds? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty good. We're the new generation of olds. The director there is out pulling his hair, but we're going to do this commercial anyhow. What hair? <laughs> oh, he's got... <laughs> it's that one. It's not the art director. Well, how would Yosemite Sam say this? We are the new generation of olds. In, look, in the, look at the dealer right there and talk to him. We are the new generation of olds. Now you heard that, you better believe it. We are, and we're going to try to do this commercial, but it's tough. Anyway, we got this director... Tough, he says. <laughs> Very simple. We've only been on it about 27 hours. We had shot the Oldsmobile commercial all day. It's not your father's Oldsmobile. And uh, I said, Dad, uh, you're coughing a little bit. Why don't you go to the doctor and get your lungs cleared out? The doctor called me and said, yeah, Mel's over here. And the doctor says, well, I can keep him in the hospital overnight or just give him a, a, some, an inhaler to get the cough out of it. My dad said, no, let's stay in the hospital overnight. It was a mistake, of course. He fell out of bed. They forgot to put the bed rails up. He broke his femur, got fed emboli into the brain, and was basically gone in 48 hours. He was still at the height of his career. He could still do all the voices that he could before, and he was still really terrific. Mel Blanc lays to rest in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Under a Star of David, the epitaph on Blanc's tombstone reads, That's all, folks. Mel Blanc has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 6385 Hollywood Boulevard. He is the only person to have himself and two of his characters on the Walk of Fame, with both Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker receiving a star. The only others to have received this honor are Walt Disney as both himself and Mickey Mouse, Jim Henson as both himself and Kermit the Frog, and Mike Myers as both himself and Shrek. Mel Blanc is one of the pillars of entertainment, an actor whose talents can still be marveled at today. My dad's legacy is laughter. He wanted to make people feel good and laugh out loud. The thing I miss most about my dad is my dad and his personality, being the great father, listening to me, never doubting me, asking good questions being great to my mom. The fact that he was such a, a marvelous human being, not only to the world, but to his family, that's what I remember most. I can turn his voice on any time and see one of the cartoons. So I can really bring him back to life at any time I want to. I hear his voice every day. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And... Suppose I was a smelly skunk, I wouldn't have a friend. I'd be alone excepting for a cent I couldn't spend. Suppose I was a gator in the swamps where time would drag. Until the day when I'd be made into a traveling bag. So I'm glad to be the way I am. Who cares if I look funny? No matter what the others have, I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny. <laughs> 
Suppose I was a turkey, then I'd end up on a tray In the middle of the table on the next Thanksgiving day Suppose I was a bullfrog, croaking out a note I dread the time when I would be a frog in someone's throat So I'm glad to be the way I am Who cares if I look funny, no matter what the others have I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Billy Joel, and he's had some career, folks, 150 million-plus albums and records sold. That's ridiculous. In fact, he's the third biggest solo artist in record sales of all time, bigger than Springsteen, Madonna, or Michael Jackson. And we're about to tell you the story of a song, a Billy Joel song, one you may know, one you may not know, but you're about to get to know it, and it's called Lullaby. And every once in a while, Billy Joel goes around the country and talks to colleges about the music of the music business, the art of writing music, and also the business of the music business, and lots of stories in between. On one particular occasion at the University of Pennsylvania, a young mom asked Billy Joel a question about her favorite song, Lullaby, and how it came to be. Joel explained that the song came about because his daughter, who had just turned seven, had asked him some pretty tough questions. Let's take a listen. So I had this, 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 uh, this melody... ...which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew. You go into the rest of their lives. They they take them with you. So, uh... But also, this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll ne- I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it, it, was, it was a tough answer, you know, in, in both respects. So Joel stammers for a bit, but then sits down in front of the keyboards and starts to perform. I would never 
point joel starts to stammer a little bit gets very emotional because well he doesn't give this explanation at madison square garden and my guess is he hadn't thought about the connection of how this song had been made in a very long time but then he gets it together steps back up to the keyboards and closes things out with this stunning final verse good night my angel now it's time to dream and dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart There will always Be a part Of me Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die, that's how you and I will be. And what a story. Billy Joel just trying to answer a question of his baby girls. So he wrote a song to sing to her. One she could sing to her baby girl. And her baby girl could sing to hers. Or her baby boy. It's a song all of us can sing to all of our boys and girls. It's the story of a song, and that's the thing about music. It transcends time, race, class, and geography. And that's why we love to do these stories. The story of a song, Billy Joel's Lullaby, here on Our American Stories. I'm 
And we continue with our American stories. And now it's time for our Tocqueville Lives segment, where we hear about the associations that ordinary Americans form each and every day to solve problems in their communities. And of course, to just plain all enjoy each other. And by the way, Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country to write about this grand experiment called democracy in the 19th century and came away with this book, a great book called Democracy in America. And he wrote extensively about the associations in this country. And I want to read for you a brief excerpt. And again, this is written in the 19th century. Quote, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general and very particular, immense and very small. Americans use associations to found seminaries, build inns, raise churches, distribute books, send missionaries. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools, and so much more. And today's Tocqueville Lives story comes from our own Joey Cortez. Brian Broadway started his own church in Claremont, Florida, outside the walls of a traditional church. Their original church of only about three families met out in the world in a park where they could serve the needs of the homeless. And beyond their Sunday church service, they served the poor in a parking lot of a Winn-Dixie grocery store. So one of my first encounters was when I went to the the Winn-Dixie and I saw a car parked there and they would park there all day. They would park there earlier and later on that night. And I walked up to the people and I asked them if they needed anything. And they had a little girl sitting in the back seat. And they told me, no, we, we actually sleep here over the night. And then in the morning, we take my husband to work and then I, I stay here with, with their daughter. And the little daughter's in the back seat of the car and she's trying to get a light to read her book. And I'm just looking at it. that time I've, I've got two daughters. And I'm looking at this cute little girl and I'm asking her questions and her name and she's telling me about her book. And I'm sitting there almost breaking down. This is someone's child, and her concept of home, her concept of a place to be with her family is the backseat of a car. How does she invite a kid over to play when she lives from parking lot to parking lot? How does, how, how does she get her clothes clean? It was the first time that I actually realized that people's children call that home. That a child thinks that the current extent of her life is this backseat of this car. The child tonight at 1.30 in the morning with people walking around with will hear noises outside and be frightened because she's in the backseat of a car. There is no air conditioning running. There is no vehicle running. The windows are cracked and someone can reach into it. That she has to live through that. There's a difference when they've been there for a while. It's like the light that's inside of them. The light that drives every child that you see in their eyes and their smile. It's like that light died out. It's like watching the death of hope side of somebody, you see it, it's different. And when you have a conversation with one of them, it's a life changer. Whether you have kids or not, you can have kids, you, you might know a niece or a nephew, you might, if it's your child or your family, you would respond because you can tell the difference. And if we let that light stay out for too long, they're going to stay that way. The life to them is going to be a, gr- a group of people passing them by. The life to them is just looking at people to see who else passes me by and has no concern about my existence. I sat there and I spoke to them about a half an hour, and then something happened. When I 
when I got up to leave and I said goodnight and I walked away, I felt like I felt like I, I felt like I had a problem breathing. I felt like everything in me was stopped functioning. My body just wasn't functioning. I felt like I, I can't even explain it. It, 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 felt, it felt like dying. It felt like saying there's something happening and you're doing nothing and you're walking away. And after I walked away from that girl, I, I decided I made a commitment. I said, I'm not walking away again without a plan. We have to come up with a plan. I'm not walking away from these children anymore. So then I, I got this idea and I named our outreach Find, Feed and Restore. And I figured if we can f- give them a foundation first, you know, if we find them a job, then where do you find them at? Well, we don't know where they live, where their car is parked, where they're going to be sleeping at. We don't, they don't have a foundation and it's hard to build a life or build anything when you don't have a foundation to start with. So to me, the first foundation is housing. How do we get them housing? How do we give them a foundation they can build from? When I moved to Florida, one of the first jobs I got, even though I had no experience in it, I got a general manager job over an RV company. And I was running their whole lot and running their technicians. And so I began learning about travel trailers. We rented travel trailers. That's what we did. Travel trailers, fifth wheels, motorhomes. So I'd go out at least for an hour and a half a day and I'd sit with a technician. I'd learn everything about them. I'd learn how they function, how to use them. That some people lived them out lived them out here in the South. There was trailer parks and people lived in them. So then two years later, we're thinking of the outreach. And I'm like, wow, we can use travel trailers and give these people a home. I started researching how do you write grants? How do you get funds? And that's when I found out that uh, grant writers cost two to $3,000 to write a grant. So then I had another roadblock. How, how do I do that? I don't have two to $3,000 to pay someone to write a grant. And there's no guarantee you win the grant after they write it. What do I do from there? And then after about a few days, just praying and wondering, what can I do? I need funds, but I can't afford to get funds. I can't get my first trailer. And then God gave me one word. I'll never forget it. I was sitting there at nighttime and he gave me one message. And the word was, learn. And that was it. That's all I had. After days of praying, after days of hoping, I got one word, learn. So at nighttime, when I come home from work, I'd play with my kids. My, my wife goes to bed at 10 30, 11. I would get on my computer from 11 o'clock to sometimes 2 in the morning. And I would Google, how do you write a grant? I would YouTube, how to write a grant, grant tips, grant techniques. And I took every free YouTube video and every free Google PDF that they had until I learned it. It took me almost a year and I learned it. First grant ever won was a Walmart grant. I think it was $500. And you would have thought that I won half a million dollars. I was ecstatic. I was, I was so happy. Um, it was just the biggest thing for me because it's like, wow, this has never happened. Um, so we won our first grant and I started winning grants from public supermarkets, from different foundations. Um, and I started winning grants until we got, so we got our first trailer. We had a visitor come to our church. A lady that was only coming for a few weeks visited us and said, listen, I have a family trailer that we use for vacations. And I left it in another state, but if you want it, you can have it. And she donated it with us. And we used the grant funds to tow it to get there. Um, and then when I started, I kept writing. And then I won a $1,000 grant. And then I won a $5,000 grant. Um, from 10000 to 20000 it kept climbing and escalating. Um, and from there, we built it up from the one trailer within two years, going from one trailer to eight trailers. And now eight trailers with duplexes. Um, but off of one word, that word was learn. But I'll never forget that never paid for a unit. We've all, they've always been donated for us. We just pay to upkeep them and keep them functioning. But Brian does much more than that too. He gives the families that join his program a vision and the tools to live a better life. 
When you come into our program, you live in the car. You don't have fresh food. You don't have anything. So when you come into a trailer, it's fully it's fully stocked uh, from steak to sausage, uh, whatever it is you eat. We show them their units. We walk through how to maintain them and keep everything clean. We go over our process. We give you a, a life coach to help keep up with you and make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Uh, we do budgeting classes. Uh, we do meal planning. We do every, all the different services that we can do to help you get back on your feet according to the game plan we preset with you. They're allowed to stay there anywhere from six to eight months renting utilities free. And after six to eight months, they should be working and they'll get a bill for $200 a month for their rent and $50 a month for their electric. And they'll start paying those bills using the budgeting classes. They've learned things to budget their money and start paying the bills. After six to eight months, we hope to be able to get them into their own place, to get them into back into self-sufficiency, where they own their own or, they ha- or they're out in their own apartment. Uh, we go over how to promote, get promoted at your job, putting forth your best effort, being on time, just some basic skills training. So that's our that's our main program goal: get get people from homeless to hopeful, into self-sufficient lifestyles. And our program has it's proven effective. The foundation first is key, or what they now call housing first, getting them into a safe place to have a foundation, and then wrapping all the services around them that they need to become self-sufficient. And we found that to be most effective. Next week, we're going to a closing. A lady bought her own park model trailer, and she's closing on it next week, and we're actually going to take pictures. That lady lived about six or seven blocks away from our church. She lived in a blue Chevy Malibu with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And she lived there for four months with those kids. So to see her come from this to that, it's just, it's a life-changing, it's a life-changing event. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Brian Broadway, the pastor of Living Message Church in Claremont, Florida. And by the way, we know this is happening all over the country, beautiful stories like this from churches, civic organizations. Send them to us, civic organizations. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Tocqueville Lives segment continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. to Our American Stories and to Brian Broadway's story. And I love that he had just mentioned a simple sentence, turning someone from homeless into hopeful. And again, no government help here, just a guy, a church, helping a person that was clearly in need of help. And again, Americans do this all the time, but our media, our press, they just like the train wreck. It's just what they do. And by the way, we like the train wreck too because we buy it. But here on Our American Stories, we don't do the train wreck. Uh, We do these kinds of stories because it represents who we are. Now let's return to Brian Broadway's story. For the past three years, from the trailers from last week to the trailers that's coming in two weeks, I cleaned them uh, with a team of another two, three people. So I've cleaned every single trailer we've had. So one thing with trailers is that trailers can't use regular toilet paper. They can't even use septic-safe toilet paper. They use what's called dissolvable toilet paper. It dissolves in water. 
You buy it at Walmart, but it's not in the toilet paper section. It's in the, tri the RV section, the auto section. You know, Walmart has that auto section across. You go to the auto section and they sell dissolvable toilet paper for RVs. Or you buy it from an RV store. So I, I try to, this is one of the things I tell people. And now I stock it. When someone, uh, someone comes to the trailer, I stock it for them. So a lady obviously didn't follow the instructions and she used regular paper. So I, she says the toilet's backed up. She goes, my kids just use the bathroom. There's poop coming above the top of the toilet. So it's about 11 o'clock at night. And I said, man, I have to wait till tomorrow. She says, we'll sleep outside in the car. We can't take the, the smell. Um, we'll just we'll sleep outside. And my wife looks at me and she says, Brian, she has two, three kids, one with special needs. You have to go. So I'm like, you're right, I have to go. So I get up and I bring my plunger. I bring my normal stuff. And you can smell it from the outside of the trailer. And I walk into the trail. They stood outside. They weren't sitting the smell. So the, the family, the wife, the, mom, the lady, her mom, and the three kids sit outside. It's pitch black. It's 1130 at night. I'm in there trying to get this thing unstuck. There's poop all on the top of it. So then I had to go to the store, buy buckets, and I had to take scoop the poop out and put it into a container. So then what I forgot is that you should open up the valves before you start in the bottom of the trailer to get the pressure out. I didn't think because I just wanted to get this thing done with. So I start pushing and putting my tools in there to try to push it through and the thing backsplashes and it shoots. <laughs> it shoots over my chest, over my chin. And, uh, and I I just react. I run outside. I take my shirt off. I run, I'm running around. I'm like, oh my, I'm screaming. I'm running around and I turn around and I realize that there's the three kids sitting down in this bleacher watching me like a madman running around with no shirt on. <laughs> from this poop that just shot out on me. So that that was a lesson on making sure you release the pressure in the tanks by opening up the tubes uh, before uh, before <laughs> before trying to clean them out. So there are certain things that I learned along the way <laughs> when cleaning trailers. But I always say, e even with that, when you, you come out kind of messy, I still walked away saying, God, I thank you that I have life to serve. I had the arms and the strength to do it. I, one day I won't be able to do it anymore, but I thank you that today I had the ability to do it. No matter how messy it was, you let me do it. But uh, still lessons you learned along the way. <laughs> and Brian, well, he's learned some more serious ones too. When we first started, we didn't know as much as we know now. So we've added on more things. Number one, we didn't realize the, the huge impact of bullying. That most of these kids go to school wearing the same outfit they wore yesterday, they're not clean because they washed up in the gas station where they just washed their face in the sink and they're being bullied. And we did, we were not, when we first started, we didn't even think about that. So we had to introduce, add into child counseling. So we found child counseling experts in our area and we write grants to be able to afford it. But we, for the kids being bullied, uh, we bring them to child therapists so they can learn to overcome and be comfortable going back to school. Um, so there was, there's a lot of pieces that we add on as we've learned um, what the main things are. So the, the, the counseling for the children is huge. Um, for the teenagers, what, what are their goals? You got a teenager, let's figure out their goals. What are they doing after school? What are their plans? What are they working towards? So we, tr we do it for everyone to make sure that everyone has a game plan of what they want to achieve and what they're trying to do. A big goal for a big problem. According to Brian, the need in his community is anything but small. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's huge. It is astounding. It's astoundingly huge. Every nonprofit calls us for housing. Every church calls us for housings. 
I mean, we're, we're churches with 2,000, 3,000 members call us with their members for housing. For some context on this, Brian has a congregation of only about 125 members, and the churches with thousands of members call him. The amount of communities that live in the woods is huge, especially in Florida, because there's so many, there's so much woods. You can move mad with a tent and no one's even know you're there. But the demand is huge. The amount of calls we get from the school system is huge. The amount of calls we get from the police department, that's huge. The police department put together their own homeless task force now, just to try to keep them safe and try to figure out ways they can stay. Um, so the, the need is huge uh, in our area and throughout most of a lot of Lake County. The need is indeed huge. But for those fortunate enough to get into Brian's program, there's also a huge impact. Earlier this year, there's been some amazing success stories. We have a couple that just graduated, the one that's on their home, and they still, and they donate to the program monthly, which to me is huge. That's just incredible. One lady, she graduated her program, and she was pretty quick. She actually worked at one of the local hospitals. And so she was a professional and fell on a hard time. She was left, and she had three kids to tend to. And we got her into our program. We got her into subsidized child care. We got everything set up for her. And then about maybe three and a half months to the program, she, she just called, and she was excited. She said, thank you so much. I just got my own place. I'll be renting a home, and um, I'll be done with the trailer by Friday. So we, you know, every time someone's done with a trailer, now some people leave you a nice trailer that's semi-clean. And some people are so excited that they rush out, they grab all their stuff, and they just leave you all the mess. So you get both sides. So not knowing what we get, I go there with two or three people normally. So this time I went with two people. I brought all our cleaning supplies. We have our cleaning baskets set aside. And uh, we came in there, and I opened the door, and it smelled like lemons. I'm like, what is this? And I walked into the trailer. It was flawlessly cleaned. I mean, just unbelievably flawlessly cleaned. I was like, well, guys, we have nothing to do here. And then I went to the refrigerator. I said, well, let's clean the refrigerator out, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get the next group and restock for them. And I opened the refrigerator, and the refrigerator was full. And I opened the freezer, and the freezer was full. Not only was it full, every item, because I did the shopping for her, every item that I bought, she brought the same exact one and put it back, which means she actually wrote down everything I put in the refrigerator when she moved in. And the steak that I brought, she brought it back. I always buy a, a pack of sausage. I always buy an eight-pack of uh, chicken cutlets from the cook. She put an eight-pack back. She brought the same juice back. She put the bottled water back. She put the fruit back. Uh, everything that I bought, she bought to the tea and put it all back in the refrigerator. Uh, the, to the cereal, to the pasta, to the pasta sauces, to the canned beans that I bought. She bought every single item and put it back. And I was just so moved by that because no one has ever done that for us before. And what a story and what a voice. And that's Pastor Brian Broadway in Claremont, Florida. And again, Americans do this all over the country. We are a beautiful people. By the way, this story was brought to us by the Mortgage Family Foundation, and they've supported his work. And philanthropy, by the way, is another form of association in this great country. I wanted to close out right now with Brian talking about his favorite verse in the Bible and how it's been his source of inspiration. It's from Galatians. Let's take a listen as we close out here on Our American Stories. Grow not weary in well-doing, for if you grow not weary, you shall re- reap a reward in the end. But tells me that doing well is should be a part of my everyday life, and that the true reward is not what I get back on this earth. 
True reward is reward I get from God when my time is done. My time will end on this earth. One day the, the sun will set on my existence. But the good news is that I did the work. I ran the race. I didn't grow weary in doing well. What I was born for, I completed. And that's why that verse has so much value to me. Do what you were born for and complete it. Do it well. Don't quit when it gets hard. Don't quit when people tell you you can't make it. Don't quit when you get a no. No, you're not getting the money. No, we can't help you. No, you don't get the trailer. No, you're not getting this. Don't quit at the nose. Push through it. Don't grow weary in doing what is well, what is good, what is just, what is kind. The reward that you receive is greater in the end. So that's, that's just my favorite. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and there are historical stories and fun stories and your stories and well sometimes we tell some tough stories we do our our eulogies when people have passed and we've done prison stories and this one well it's about the homeless and it's a very serious social crisis in our country and the stories of the homeless mostly go on uh, mostly go ignored or unreported and that is until now. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in television to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, a website that chronicles the lives of homeless people around this country. He hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. And today, he's the online voice of his cause, bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Marissa's story. Marissa and her four children live in the Union Rescue Mission, a largely homeless shelter in the Skid Row area of downtown L.A. Last night, 245 homeless children slept at the Union Rescue Mission and that's just one shelter. Here's Mark. Marissa, we're in Los Angeles. You're in a homeless shelter. Tell me about it. Um, well, the homeless shelter I'm in is pretty nice um, due to the fact that you have your own privacy, you're safe with your kids because you have people around you watching over your safety. Um, they're really helpful. Everybody here is pretty nice. Um, coming from a person who's been homeless before, I, how do I say it? It's more like a blessing finding a place like this because when you've been homeless before, you've either been couch surfing or you've been sleeping on the streets. And then now that I've been homeless for the first time with kids, it I don't know, I feel blessed because I don't have my kids on the street while I'm homeless. I have a roof over my head and I get to feed them because they give us food to feed them every time. I don't have to worry about whether I have money for food or not. Um, so it's pretty good. It's got to be tough raising kids homeless. It is. I have four. So, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty tough. 
Now, where would you be if it wasn't for a Union Rescue Mission? Honestly, I don't know where I would be. Um, at the moment, I feel like if I wasn't at the rescue no! mission, I probably wouldn't even have my kids with me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where were you before? Um, I was couch surfing and in motels back to back. Uh, how long were you doing that? Um, until I ran out of money and my car ended up getting repossessed. So, but how long were you in hotels and couch surfing? About a month. Yeah. Now, you told me that you uh, were raised in foster care. Yes. And you were homeless before. Right. Tell me about that. Um, so, at the age 13, I was going through a lot. Um, my mom would physically abuse me. And then, at the age of 13, I found out my stepdad wasn't really my dad. So I had to go through a sexual abuse and I would get raped for a few years until the age of 15 when I found out I had a big sister who lived with her dad. And um, when I found that out, I told her what was going on. The police interfered and then they took me away from my mom and that's how I ended up into foster care. When I got into foster care at the age of 15, um, I started going into different foster homes due to either my foster parents weren't really caring about me, all they wanted was the money, or it's either because I would get into fights at school because of, I had so much going on, like I wouldn't, I wasn't stable. When then in high school, when I became a senior, I ended up going to seven different high schools until one day I had a really good counselor. And um, he, that counselor would always help me with stuff. And he told me one day, um, Maritza, I know you have a lot in you. Like, I know you could do it. You need to stop filling your classes. You need to stop um, ditching from school and all that stuff. I don't know where it clicked that I had to do good. So he helped me get two extra classes in school. So in school, I would go in at six in the morning to my first class in high school. And then I'd come out of high school at four o'clock from a different class just to make up my credits. And thank God he pushed me because I ended up graduating from high school. Um, when I graduated from high school, I didn't know, but um, I, had, I, w I had found out that I was pregnant with my first son. When I found out I was pregnant with my first son, I told my foster parents at the moment, and unfortunately, they weren't licensed for kids or they would have had me and my son there. So since then, I ended up homeless for the first time. When I was homeless for the first time pregnant, I had nowhere to go. Um, I was couch surfing. I ended up finding this place called Sarah's House and they took me in. Um, when they took me in, once you had the baby, you have to, you have three months to find out where to go or what to do. So I ended up like working and stuff and just trying to get it together. So they gave you 90 days Yeah. to go from zero to, to self-sufficiency. Yeah. How do you do that in 90 days? Honestly, I don't even know how I did it. At two weeks after having my baby, I just started working. Yeah, I went back to work and um, I just started like trying to put stuff together. I started renting a room for like 300 until the landlord thought it wasn't enough. So then I had to move out there. So then I went to move in with my son's dad for a little bit. 
ended up pregnant again. That didn't work out. So yeah. I ended up homeless again. Yeah. Yes, three jobs. Oh, you're working. currently working three jobs? Yes, DoorDash. I work for David and Margaret Family Youth Services in the cafeteria and then the gas station at 76. So currently, right now, you have three jobs? I have, yeah. yeah. Are they put obviously part-time? Yes, yes. So. Still not enough, but it's something. Well, you're hustling. Yeah, I'm trying to. I have a car, so I have to, I have to pay a lot of stuff out for them. Yeah. And that little little voice over there, that was Andy. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Andy, he's always helping people out. If it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be at. Like, seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, when I came homeless again this year, um, I had nowhere to go. Like, um, my coworker reached out to me and introduced me to Andy. I called Andy and I told him, like, Hey, I'm stuck at a motel. My car got repoed. I have nowhere to go. Like, do you have anywhere I can go? And he was like, yeah, um, that's not a problem. He's like, just tell me where you are. We'll come pick you up. He came. He picked me up in his big truck. And then um, I explained to him, like, I'm not trying to go to wherever we're going by myself. Like, I would like my kids with me. My kids are with their dad, and I don't know how I'm gonna get them. He automatically said, where are your kids at? I told him they're in Lancaster. He's like, don't worry about it. Just give me the address. We'll go pick them up right away. We literally went all the way to Lancaster, pick up the kids. We picked up the boys, and then we were all in his truck. Like, my kids were excited riding in his truck. Um, my son just kept <laughs> poor Andy. His ear was so tired, and my boys were like talking to him nonstop. Um, he got them Jack in the Box because they were hungry, like they were really, really hungry. And um, they started asking Andy questions, like, "Do you ride bikes?" Um, they just you just rode 400 miles. Just get him. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, they were just talking his ear off. He was conversating with them back. I think I dozed off for a minute. Yeah. I did right, <laughs> and then I think my own. Snoring like woke me up and then I woke up <laughs> and then he's like mommy. Did you get enough rest? I said yes. Thank you and they were still talking Well homelessness is so stressful when you it's finally get in a place where you feel secure you sleep mm -hmm. Right, you know because you don't get much sleep when you're stressed Right. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for adding those <laughs> stories in Yeah, huh? Yeah, now my kids love Andy What's your future like? Um, honestly, in my future, I just want to see myself in a permanent house, a stable job, and going back to school for my last semester. I have one semester left to get my AA in criminal justice. So I hope that in my future I have accomplished those three things yeah. with my kids. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Just, I would convert into one wish and just basically do the best I can for my kids, provide them what they need for, for the rest of their life. Even if they're old or whatever, just provide them with a place, a stable place, um, money coming in from a job, from my job, and that's pretty much it, the well-being of them. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And again, that was Mark Horavath, and he was talking to Marissa, and she has four children and lives in Union Rescue Mission, and that's a large homeless shelter.
in the Skid Row section of Los Angeles. And what a voice, and we're going to hear more of these uh, because, my goodness, we should. An abusive mom as a teenager. Next, she's in foster care, and, well, we all know what that can be like. There are some good foster parents, but, boy, there are some bad ones. As she said, they were just in it for the money, the ones she had. And then there were fights, seven different high schools, and what a unique voice. And thanks to Mark Horvath for doing this. Invisible People is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through innovative storytelling, news, and advocacy. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Marissa's story, so many homeless people's story, and Mark Horvath's story here on Our American Stories.